What's up? You're listening to Fork the Product. I'm your host, Nick Casares. And I'm your other host, Zach Cohen. Fork the Product is a podcast that explores the intersection of blockchain, product, and user experience. We interview founders and builders to understand how they're approaching problems in the blockchain space. In this episode, we dig in with Vishak, the founder of Cryptonomic. Cryptonomic is an NYC-based startup building developer tools to enable decentralization and digital sovereignty in a multi-chain future. Vishak gives us the inside scoop on how his team has grown and evolved, why he believes in a multi-chain future, and how Cryptonomic is helping build towards that, starting with the first Tezos wallet. Vishak, thanks so much for joining us today. And it's been a little bit of a journey to get here. Just a few microphones and a couple of reschedules, but we're, we're super excited to have you on the show. Um, to to get us started today, can you tell us? Just give us a little bit of your your intro, and your background, and and tell us uh, how you got into crypto. Sure. Uh, first of all, uh, it's, it's great talking to you guys, uh, being part of this. I'm really looking forward to what you do. Uh, about me, um, a pretty stereotypical uh, hacker story. So I, I started with an Atari twenty six hundred. Literally, when I spoke my first words coding in uh, Atari Basic. And then um, I've been online for quite some time. So I started with BBS services way back in the day, early days of the web. Um, I was always attracted to hacker freaker culture. So I've been to multiple DEF cons. I, uh, I spent quite some time with the 2600 crew in New York yeah. City. Nice. So, <laughs> so uh, I've always been attracted to this general field. Uh, especially anonymity and privacy. So the early days of Bitcoin, I found it really fascinating what was going on. Initially, I was a little bit skeptical, but at some point um, it started to make sense. So maybe about five years ago, I was mining pretty seriously. Uh, the Chinese miners, the large scale miners took over. So ever since, uh, I've been looking more at the, uh, at the software side. So from the early days of Ethereum, uh, with some of my some of my collaborators, we did a lot of work with smart contracts. Initially, we looked at how one would build a decentralized financial system, and that kind of brought us in more and more into the rabbit hole. So now we find ourselves uh, doing this full time. So I am part of a few crypto projects, uh, most notably Cryptonomic, which is a blockchain infrastructure company, and, uh, and now I'm talking to you guys. When we first met, that was at a JP Morgan event. And I know that at the time you weren't working there, but um, can you tell us a little bit about your time at JP Morgan and if and how it relates to what you're doing now? Yeah. So uh, I did, I was a employee at, at JP Morgan for many years. So I primarily worked on uh, risk and trading systems. So interestingly, um, if you look at the origin of Bitcoin, the genesis block of Bitcoin has a reference to the financial crisis. So it's kind of this, this big breach in, uh, in, in our uh, worldview produced Bitcoin. So likewise, I, I, I didn't know much about the financial industry. I, I was in grad school and needed to uh, step out for a few years and uh, make some money. So I got a job and I found myself on the trading floor at Burstons where they were trading credit derivatives and mortgage derivatives. This was right before the financial crisis. So my earliest moment in as a outside of the startup world, as a kind of 
Ferrari man adult was literally watching the, the economy crumble before me and uh, and basically the entire trading floor around me disappearing. I think that was that, that was a very uh, powerful experience. Uh, I didn't think much of it at that time, but it just really like underpins and informs uh, how you perceive the world and, and, and the systems around you. So uh, I, I did a bunch of uh, projects at J.D. Morgan, but always, uh, you, you know, the, the impression that I had working with credit derivatives and really complex products at JP at Bear Stearns and JP Morgan. Uh, it, uh, it, it, it definitely showed me at its core how fragile the system was. So, uh, so, so when Bitcoin and then smart contracts became a thing, I could immediately see how there would be, uh, direct applications, beneficial applications to, uh, uh for, for everyone. So, uh, th that definitely had an effect. However, at some point, uh, you know, at JP Morgan, there's only so much you can do, right? Like it's, uh, it's, it's, it's great for operating in the conventional world, but if you, if you're dealing with emerging technology and trying to, uh, build something new, then it's uh, more advantageous to be outside. And were you on the blockchain team at all while you were at JP? Um, no, uh, I was excited when they launched it. Some of my good friends work on there, but, uh, I was always a little bit dubious about private ledgers. Since then, I've changed my opinions a little bit, and it's not just because of my friends. But I'm more interested in the public space. And right now, you know, you can see that the entire crypto space has cleaved itself into two pieces. Right, the first is where blockchains and cryptocurrency are providing underlying infrastructure. So you're just kind of swapping out the, the monetary basis or the financial basis of your system. And there, to most people, it's almost invisible if they're using crypto or not. It, it, all that matters is there's a stable system underneath. And then the second bit that it's leaves itself into is, uh, is an approach to try to be more global, uh, less authoritarian, more distributed, and uh, try to build systems that are more censorship resistant and maybe more democratic. So uh, it remains to be seen whether that'll happen, but that's kind of how things have lived themselves. And I kind of see myself in the uh, more on the second half. To segue a little bit into what you're working on now, you know, what was that transition like for you to jump from JP Morgan and, and jump into this full time? And can you just walk us through that story a little bit and and dive into what you're working on now? Well, I had the luxury of time. So with my friends, I did a bunch of side projects, none of them commercial, Mr. Diamond, please. Uh, so I did a bunch of side projects and that, uh, I mean, look, initially I had no, there was nobody knew where this was going to go, right? Like no one thought that this was going to be a thing and people were going to do it seriously. Initially, we were just mucking around. I remember the early days of Ethereum, the community was still really small. We started working with uh, trying to build derivatives and so on. And that really brought us up to speed with, with uh, the ecosystem, but it also showed how limited it was. So it kind of remained a sort of toy, right? So we put some articles on Medium, had some discussions with people, but uh, that kind of eased us in. And um, what's interesting is I worked on systems that represented complex financial instruments and priced them. So if, if anything, I feel any project that I do with finance in the crypto space is actually... Um, it benefits a lot from actually working in the uh, more conventional uh, established space. And uh, leaving JP Morgan, um, uh, it, because 
you know, when you're in the throes of passion, everything is super easy, right? So uh, it, it wasn't a difficult transition. Uh, rather relish the liberty and uh, the the vastness of the space. And, uh, you know, I, I worked on some uh, tasty projects at, at JP Morgan as well, but the scale just doesn't compare, right? So at JP Morgan, obviously you have a massive budget. They'll just throw $20 million at you or whatever. You can, you can just uh, try to bludgeon your way into success. But at the end of the day, you're really constrained by the uh, the, the immediate PL needs of the company. Whereas now we're kind of free to uh, explore the space and uh, also really define the product. Uh, in, in, in the established space, the kinds of products that you can build, the kinds of interactions they have with people are very, very entrenched, right? So good luck on Wall Street trying to build a system for traders that doesn't involve Excel or trying to do better visualizations or uh, try to uh, kind of uh, do anything uh, differently. But now uh, we can kind of put on our more, most creative hat and try to figure out solutions to all these new problems that we're coming across. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, can you take us a little bit deeper on Cryptonomic and, and you know, tell us about the problems that you're solving and, and the creativity there? Yeah. So uh, Cryptonomic is uh, officially doing blockchain infrastructure. So uh, this Specific companies dedicated to making people's lives easier. So one thing that we've seen since day one is it's really hard to build with crypto, so, and it's not just for developers, but for uh, the the entire team. It's really hard to uh, e- even when the development team is building something to have visibility into what they're building and 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 how it works. So I think in most cases, what you have is people looking at the end product, the absolute end product, and trying their best to, uh, to, to make decisions based on that. So uh, in, in all other spaces, whether you're a project manager, you're, you're uh, a senior manager or a designer or what have you, you do, you do get a little bit of a cross-section of how everything is going. You don't, you don't necessarily have that here. And if you're a developer, life can be really, really frustrating. So uh, we've experienced it ourselves. We see people that... Uh, other companies, hackathons, uh, some of our employees that have come in. So the whole intention is to provide a suite of tools that uh, let you easily spin up blockchains, uh, work with them, provide user-friendly interfaces so uh, people can have real visibility into what is being built. So uh, that's generally uh, cryptonomic, uh, or that's generally what cryptonomic does. Uh, um, But we have somehow found ourselves in some sort of related projects. So the Tezos blockchain is about to come live. And uh, through a variety of circumstances, we're building a wallet, a cryptocurrency wallet uh, for the Tezos ecosystem, which we hope to extend into uh, a very rich uh, interface for uh, for the users. To get a sense of actual timelines here, when, when did you officially start Cryptonomic and give us a sense for the team that you have around you? Officially, we began in November. Obviously, the idea has germinated long before. So the company is actually quite recent. It's uh, It's been uh, seven or eight months. Um, so the, the founder team obviously came first. Uh, and we're kind of spread across um, research, and in my case, business technology. And, and, and we were very particular about being a design-first shop. So literally, our first two, uh, the first two people that we brought on board were designers. So... Uh, 
uh, we at that time we were trying to imagine what the best course would be. So we tried to bring in people who were relatively fresh to kind of steep them in the uh, crypto world and then proceed from there. So uh, so the designers were first, and then uh, we got some developers in as well, and the developers just sort of came to us. So in terms of skill sets, we generally have uh, more junior employees because uh, they're a bit more receptive to, to new ideas, right? So, and anyone who is more senior justifiably is a lot more skeptical, a lot more, uh, uh, you know, they suspend their, their disbelief for longer, which is really healthy. So we, we do tend to gravitate towards that. I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, I know that that's great. I was also curious to understand, you, you sort of alluded to how the group of the founders uh, that you're working with, you had started the side projects in the crypto space earlier on before forming the company. So it sounds like that informed why you started Cryptonomic. Can you just explain a little bit about how that highlighted the problem that you're trying to solve with Cryptonomic and and dive into the problem space a little bit deeper? Yeah, so there were two things, really. The first was we started fairly early. We started before the Ethereum launch, actually. And initially, it just seemed too rough. When I first went on on, on the web in 1993, it, I, I just wanted to make a website. Everyone was doing it. I wanted to make a website. And not just a website with like linking text, which obviously I had, but I wanted to have a guest book and a counter. So like you wanted to show off like how many people had gone to your site. Oh, you're taking me back to the good old days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was a much more creative time. You could express yourself freely, which I like uh, about crypto right now. <laughs> you can just go to town. Um, but it was really hard, you know, just to have that guest book and that, that little spinning counter and everything. It was, I, I remember it took, it took me three months. There was no Google and there, there were no manuals. It, it was so fresh. Uh, there were some crotchety old fogies that re- very reluctantly helped you out. So you had to pretend to be a female and then, you know, they, they would give you all the information. <laughs> Such were the days. Um, so it kind of reminds me of that, right? It's really like you can see the potential. It just feels so big and exciting, and yet it's so hard to work with. And uh, just getting into the weeds a little bit with Ethereum, for example, we're trying to do stuff with finance, right? So we're thinking, why shouldn't a coffee farmer in Ethiopia not be able to directly uh, trade with uh, with a cafe in Bushwick? And even the supply chain between the coffee farmer and uh, cafe in Bushwick, it probably has 20 hops uh, in today's world with today's technology. You know, you're never going to get rid of the intermediary, but you can reduce it down to five. So we had all these lofty dreams and we were kind of like checking out this technology. But we found that, you know, it's, it's not easy to um, publish market data or it's not easy to schedule stuff on the blockchain or, or it's really hard to divide numbers because um, you, you can't have decimal points in very short, at least at that, at that point. So things were really raw and, and immature. But... Really, over the last 18 months, things have taken off. Uh, a lot of money has come into the ecosystem. Obviously, you know, that, that could be either good or bad. But one of the benefits has been there's a lot more money now to build the tools and the foundational infrastructure needed to, to actually make this practicable. So we saw that happening. And at some point, it just became impossible for us to, uh, to not do it full time. But, but the, the development tools are still really poor. The design tools are still very poor. So that informed the the actual first few products that we're working on. It's to make life easy 
to work with blockchain and cryptocurrency so we can work on our uh, loftier projects. So uh, that's one thing, right? Like this, this technology kind of finding its uh, maturity. I think the other is formal, right? Like we, we, we've been doing this since the early days. We have all these ideas. We're like, oh, we should make a decentralized exchange and we should, uh, we should have these uh, kind of uh, treatable tokens and so on. I spent a lot of time up down here at Max Cafe talking about it. And then they're like, ah, no, that's silly. That would never work. That That's just completely ridiculous. But then we see people actually start started to build it, right? Like it was the zero X protocol and uh, ERC token standard and, and so on. So the phone was just really uh, screamed in our faces until uh, we just had to do it. You mentioned that you're working on Tezos right now. Are you working exclusively on one blockchain? Are you focused on multiple and whichever it is? Can you just explain the the rationale behind that? Yeah, so our overall strategy is to be chain agnostic. One of the bets we're making is there's going to be a whole plethora of chains. And the needs of the shipping industry are very different from the needs of the financial industry, which are very different from the needs of, um, let's say, uh, the the law enforcement industry or, or, or government or what have you. So uh, over time, you're going to see a lot of specialization, right? Even for Ethereum, there might be variations of Ethereum that are suited for uh, this segment or that. And sometimes public makes sense, sometimes private makes sense, sometimes uh, quasi-public makes sense. That you just going to have a lot of diversity, and that totally makes sense. In some sense, blockchains are no different than databases. Uh, There's just places where you stick data. And you know we have uh, four or five major kinds of databases and so many different deployments. So, uh, so, so the, the future we believe is multi-chain, but a few chains are going to dominate and you, you kind of want to be aligned to them, right? You can't possibly code for all the seven credible chains that are out there. Um, so, uh, so obviously, uh, Ethereum is a one is, is, is a, is, is the, is the one that everyone is still responding to. They have the most traction. So Ethereum makes a lot of sense to work with. However, We've seen that uh, just due to the fact that it's three years old, right? Technology moves really fast. Technology moves in really fast cycles. So they're laden with some uh, design choices that at the time made total sense. They're still good, but they're kind of limiting right now. So that's what attracted us to Tezos because Tezos has really good backing behind it. Smart team that we kind of know. And they address some of the weaker points of uh, Ethereum. So that's what brought us to Tezos. But besides that, there's a few uh, really strong contenders that that we might be interested in, but you know when we actually try to work with them, right? When we actually we, we put a developer for uh, about six weeks to just explore the state of various chains and try to build these little toy applications on them, and it just wasn't possible. So uh, when the time comes, when the other chains mature, we'll pick them up as well. So is that process of building out uh, little experiments on different chains? I mean, that's kind of like MVP, right? Like you're shipping something just to get a sense for how the market's going to respond or if it's even feasible. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so we took some of our previous work with financial contracts and we're trying to graft it onto different chains and kind of uh, adapt them to the idiosyncrasies of each. Um, but unfortunately, in most cases, there's nothing to work with. Right, like it's it's all theoretical. There's uh, they, they claim to have a test net or whatever, and it's just uh, not very useful. And one of the things that that you notice is that the the terminology or or the concepts also shift a lot. So people call themselves second generation, third generation, fourth generation blockchains, but the, the they they're also trying to change the paradigm a lot. So uh, that can be a burden 
on uh, the entire team because you uh, because the technology is so early, every member of the team has to uh, kind of over-specialize in the tech that they're dealing with. And that knowledge is not necessarily as fungible as you think it is. Uh, when you adopt a different blockchain or you try, try trying something different out, you really have to uh, educate yourself in it. And really, is the switching cost worth it? Is the friction worth it right now? Probably not. In the future, Trupnomic will deliver glorious tools such such that you don't have to uh, make this, uh, you don't have to uh, adapt and everything just seamlessly works. One day you're using uh, Ethereum, the next day you're using Tezos, the next day you might be using, I don't know, Zilliqa and so on. Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, it kind of reminds me of like uh, modern front-end development. You know, if you rewind 15 years on the web and people were trying to, you know, it was Flash or it was ActiveX, like everybody was just, you know, grouping around whatever tool was going to get the job done for the thing that they wanted to build. But eventually, you fast forward today, and there's there's so many ways to do things. Like you basically have no limitations at this point, right? Like you, you can just kind of do what you want to do and not worry about that sort of specialization or building around the technology, but it's, it still is like the early days right now. Yeah, no, exactly. That's actually one of the inspirations for uh, our products. So some of our, some of our uh, own projects have front ends, right? And it's so seamless. Like everything just works so well together because we've learned all these long and difficult lessons. So many people have brought their talent and energy in. And it's just like so, so easy, right? Like we, our, our team picked up all the front end knowledge and, uh, and put stuff together. The tools are so great, like the prototyping tools and the, the entire process, the end to end, even, even as on the human side, right? Like the, uh, the designers and the product managers and the uh, developers, they're just so used to working in all these uh, common paradigms. That's where we need to be. Yeah. It's interesting. We, you know, I, Nick has a lot more uh, coding background and has been working in the space just longer than I have. But, you know, this, process of even getting set up with the podcast has been a revelation. It's, it just is proof of how Indeed. incredible technology is that we can spin this up very quickly and easily. And yeah, it does feel in many ways like crypto is a, a long way away from that. Yeah, this is very true. And especially because we don't yet know. So, and, you know, I'm talking about the, the, the second piece of the cleave I was telling you about. We don't yet know what it means to have a successful crypto user interface because the, uh, in this, in the second piece, the, the upside is sovereignty, uh, self-control and, uh, and, and, and freedom, right? But that also implies all these responsibilities that you must have. And, uh, we, we just don't have the kind of, uh, awareness that, that even allows us to think about how to build, um, good front end tools. So with the status wallet, for example, uh, it, 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 it allows you to manage your own currency, right? It, it, it's a cryptocurrency wallet and eventually it will, it will let you participate in a decentralized governance process. And it will eventually let you participate in this monetary economy that, uh, due to proof of stake. But, uh, the, the number one challenge is conveying to the user the kind of power and the kind of, uh, that they're, that, that they're taking on. Absolutely. And you yeah. put all the little warnings in there, red text, blue text, make them like retype their mnemonic three times. But that, uh, but that still doesn't quite do it. So I, I think that's an area of active research. And 
Uh, right now, the only answer we have is uh, lots and lots of education. So we're going to put some explainer videos together and hopefully they'll make people's lives easier. But I think we can, we'll do a lot better. I, I was talking to my wife about this, actually. Um, she's she's not in crypto at all, but she listens to me babble about it from time to time. And I was explaining some of the concepts to her. And you know, the, the idea that you have a single password, a single key that if you lose it, it's gone forever, right? <laughs> like you are solely responsible for that. And it's just a paradigm that we don't really have in any kind of consumer product or any area of our lives, right? There's generally a way to bail out there. You can call a locksmith, you can break in the back door. There are ways to, you can open the safe if you really need to. We really don't have that kind of relationship with anything in our world. I mean, it's difficult enough writing the code for that. Believe me, we, we try to be <laughs> as redundant as possible and multiple audits and so on and so forth, which you never do for like normal software. You just like push it out and then let people file blood reports, let's be honest. But here you can't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it just kind of, uh, it's, it's a big responsibility, right? And, and, and I think this really distinguishes uh, crypto applications from normal applications because you don't it's more akin to writing software for radiation machines and jet planes than it is for writing Snapchat. Snapchat was the worst that can happen. You know, uh, you're, uh, uh, someone sees an image that you don't want to. It's really terrible, of course, but we, ha we have ways to remediate that. But here, there's no remediation. There's no going back. Uh, when, when uh, you know, It's just like the, the, the radiation machine or the MRI or the jet plane, if something bad happens, it's it's going to be calamitous and you'll never be able to reverse it. Yeah, this extra burden, this extra responsibility is something that we're going to be more and more aware of uh, in, in the coming years. I, I don't think it's really uh, made itself into the psyche of the, uh, of the crypto product and development community yet. So well, I, I want to go two directions with this because there's something I want to go back to, but I, I feel like we're at a place where we should talk about experience design. Um, so I'll pause on the UX stuff. I want to go back to uh, just the, kind of the multi-chain thing and figuring out where you go next. So if the developer is your your user or your customer right now, and you're thinking about what does the roadmap look like for Cryptonomic? What's the thing that we're going to build next? What are we going to support? What's your thought process around figuring that out? Like setting priorities on what you build next? Is there any are you just looking at you know where things are getting critical mass in the community and saying that's where we need to go next, or is it driven more by you know a point of view opinion that you have about where to take the community? Maybe maybe a little of both. Yeah, so yeah, it's definitely a little bit of both. So um, as to as to what drives our immediate agenda, um, a, a lot of this work at Cryptonomic is driven by the projects that we want to do on the decentralization side, on the peer to peer finance side. So in, in some sense, at all times, we're thinking about these, uh, these uh, like the end game, right? Like the big applications that we want to build. And that really informs the direction in which we're going. And, um, and, and, and you know, we, we encounter a lot of other people who also have similar ambitions. And the, pro the problems tend to be the same. So that, that's one of the biggest drivers right now. The, the, the other is it's kind of... a um, self-feeding cycle. So like the more you work on this stuff, the more you realize there are more and more pain points that you didn't really anticipate. So you, you uh, put them on the agenda as well. But uh, in terms of being uh, kind of top-down versus bottom-up, it's, I mean, in, in general, if I weren't in crypto, I'd be at, as bottom-up as possible, right? Like my opinions would be just some precious nonsense that I'd never pay attention to. I'd see what people actually want and I'd sure. try to deliver it to them. Yeah. But uh, unfortunately, we're not at that stage yet, right? Like no one that I know is 
is besides actually like paying each other, besides payments, no one is actually seriously using a crypto app right now. So uh, 2019, some of these, uh, some of the earliest major uh, planned apps are going to come out like Augur and uh, um, I, I mean, I, I want to say Golem, but uh, it, it's, a, it's a more niche community. So uh, like Augur is one application that, that's going to come out that's been promised for a long time. A lot of people are excited about, and that's going to give people uh, a direct insight of what it means to use a decentralized app, right? It's not crypto kitties, right? It's not like there's actual stakes and, and then money. So uh, that's, that's going to inform a lot. But another issue is in crypto, whether it, both on the UX side and the design side and the product side, there's a lot of anxiety and nausea for a lot of people, right? They, have, they get drafted in. It's this vast new evolving space. And when it comes time to actually build something, uh, people are lost because they, they come with all of this experience in the uh, in the classic world, and then it doesn't necessarily transfer over due to some of the unique characteristics of the crypto space. So uh, that's another reason why, because people tend to bring their biases in, and they've kind of, or not just biases, their experiences in, but they find that those aren't necessarily directly translatable, right? So uh, that that is a bit paralyzing. That's why. We're still not at the stage where, you know, you can get someone who's going to wear a bunch of different apps and you can just kind of tell them the germ of the idea and they just run with it and they deliver something nice. That's that's still uh, far away from us. Do you think that is more a function of where we are in the life cycle of crypto because it's very early on? Or do you think it's a fundamentally different aspect of crypto as a technology? Yeah, uh, that, that, that's a great question. I think it goes back to the cleave. So... There's going to be one class of applications where somewhere it's going to be underpinned by crypto, right? So that's, you, you can imagine Coinbase at the end of the day is a crypto exchange, but uh, there's a bunch of applications that build on top of Coinbase or their um, messaging app, uh, which, which I believe is going to be uh, developed further, right? And they might, they might never actually have to deal with any of the crypto issues. And there uh, you can see that uh, conventional understandings of, uh, of, of of people and problems translate really well, and uh, that's that's pretty much around the corner, right? Like that, you can see uh, as cryptocurrencies become more institutionalized, the legal risk goes down. Uh, there's going to be very low switchover cost. But in the second bit of the crypto space, where we're kind of trying to design a different kind of structure, it's really early in the life cycle. Yes, but Fundamentally, it's just different. You know, it kind of reminds me of uh, Thomas Kuhn's structure of scientific revolutions, right? Like he he was looking at the birth of quantum mechanics, and his uh, thesis was all these unexplained or radically new developments came about, and the classic physics theory was not sufficient to explain them. So, so the, quant the quantum mechanical world was being built in parallel, and then if, if you were one of the established classical physicist, you just didn't see the point of quantum mechanics. And the same instruments, the same uh, experimental me methodology, the same mathematics and so on, they didn't translate between the two. So, so the word that Thomas Kuhn used was incommensurable. And that's the word I kind of get right now, where when I look at uh, a lot of my friends who especially come from the world of finance, uh, private equity, and uh, Kind of uh, the twenty six hundred crew and, and 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 the rest, right? So that that incommensurability is there, and 
many of the uh, methods and practices are never going to translate over. Given you all are focused on the Tezos wallet, can you walk us through sort of the story behind how you started working on that, as well as I know the grant that was given to you all. So just walk us through that story, but if you could. Oh yeah, definitely. So um, like I said earlier, um, Ethereum's great. We've been using Ethereum since the beginning, really, and big fans to this day. But uh, you know, we've been around for the whole for the whole ride. We've seen issues with Ethereum, um, especially on the uh, fragility of the smart contracts. So only as recently as a few months ago, the Parity wallet lost what was it, $230 million because of a very trivial bug in the Solidity code. Um, so th- that's one thing. And on the Bitcoin side, we saw that governance turned into a total disaster. Like there was a lot of fighting. But no matter what side of the camp you're on, you'll, you'd agree that it was very hard to form any consensus. It basically became impossible. So uh, that really initially attracted us to Tezos because of the formal verification and uh, the governance aspect. So we were always interested. We, we we wanted to be part of it since day one. We helped organize some of the meetups early in the days. Um, and uh, we, you know, we've, we've been a presence in space, uh, kind of uh, funding a little bit of development to make sure that uh, there was traction. There were some difficult days early in the days of Tezos legal matters in Switzerland. So we kind of uh, stayed involved, kept building, uh, helped help keep the momentum going uh, because we felt it was important to get these ideas out there. So uh, nothing is a panacea, right? Formal verification might be useful to only 1% of applications ever. But uh, constructing something in a, in a principle matter is, uh, is actually quite valuable to the Tezos ecosystem. And one of our preconditions was, well, your work must be open source. That's great. Yeah, it really is an interesting aspect of this whole community. Yeah, honestly, uh, if we roll out a wallet right now and we don't provide the source code, people are going to be rightfully very suspicious, right? And, and this is crypto, let's face it, you know, 5% of the people have, uh, what is it, 90% of the coins or whatever it is. So... Uh, the serious users are only going to want to use things that are auditable, where you have full transparency and the a healthy amount of paranoia for an institution or an exchange might be to literally uh, build things from source, right? Like don't even trust us for our own wallet. Take our code and build it on your own. So if I can jump into some UX for a minute. Um, earlier, you, you mentioned how the, the first two hires were designers which for a target market of developers seems interesting uh, that the designers would be your first hires. So tell me a little bit about the motivation behind that decision. Why hire design first? And how did that impact your first steps with Cryptonomic? Yeah, so keep in mind that we're building developer tools because the end game is actual user products. So you can't really isolate one from the other. So uh, that's why the intention was to work backwards. Outline the kind of user products that we would be building and others would be building as well, and then just kind of back out from there. So that's why we were designed first, right? Because, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, what is it that you're trying to build, right? Like you, you, You must have some concrete idea. And another problem is it's really hard to talk about Cryptocurrency and blockchains, it's uh, when you have this conversation, half the time you're talking in a very nebulous manner and you hope that 10% of people kind of get what you're talking about. 
And it's really hard to grok because people come, are coming into this space from so many uh, different sources. So if we, if we were to put a, a visual facade onto these ideas that we had, uh, we felt we'd be able to communicate more clearly what we were trying to do. So uh, that was another reason to be design first and get the designers in. So they, uh, even they, in fact, did not start with these developer tools. Um, they, we started off with some uh, rough conception of what the end game was going to be, what we actually really, really wanted to build. So the, the intention was the designers would also see the point and they would get some familiarity with the use cases. And then that would kind of inform the developer tools that we build. And by the way, the, the developer tools uh, is uh, not necessarily just for developers, right? It's for the entire team that's putting the product together to be able to collaborate in a very uh, in, in a very transparent manner. Um, yeah, so the, the, hence, hence the designs were brought in and um, we considered ourselves design first. Tell me about the first, say, 30 days with designers full-time. What, what were they doing? What was the process? And also, I'd be curious to hear the background, like the work background of those designers, just so we can have a little bit of context on what they were doing before. So let me state up front that uh, the, the, we had to evolve the design team. Um, it's, uh, it, it's not, you know, there was never any issue with the intelligence or the ability of any particular designer, but we... Uh, we came into this with very few data points, and uh, I think over the past few months, we've kind of gotten a very good sense of, uh, you know, whether it's on the design side or the development side or or whatever it is of the kinds of people that uh, that are best qualified to to work on the problems. So, having said that, um, with, with with our initial designers, we, in in order to uh, so so they came with uh, uh, with. Uh, experience in uh, social media and um, a little bit of industrial design, and uh, but they were not very steeped in the cryptocurrency world at that time, deliberately so. So literally, the first two to three weeks, they were doing CryptoKitties. We set them up with an Ethereum wallet, introduced them to CryptoKitties, and said, "Just go to town. Like, like there's no, there's no work, there's no homework. Just like sit there and uh, you're taking allowance. Go and buy and trade CryptoKitties for the next two weeks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and then it just <laughs> became a problem because they, they started asking for more and more ETH, right? And that was at the peak of the boom, and you're like, well, you know, <laughs> you, you spent your you allowance. Did not come for the online week. to around. become a kitty trader. You came online to become a designer." <laughs> Yeah, they got really into it. Like your your habit, your your drug habit is really costing the company a lot of money. (laughs) Um, So that's how they started out. But I I think that was useful because that set them up with all the basics: running a wallet, running the um, what you call it, that that browser plugin. um, Metamask name I keep forgetting, and then Metamask, yeah, and and the rest of the uh, the rest of the step. Right, It it was very educational. So that's how we started out. But at the same time, uh, we were also kind of doing uh, uh, general purpose education, right? So people who come from outside of the crypto domain, um, uh, you, 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 you kind of have to explain the the underlying motivations a little bit because they're not very clear, right? Like, like sovereignty or freedom or, um, or control. These are all really vague, nebulous, Concept. Everything in our lives, like everyone here lives in the United States of America, right? 
uh, things more or less work okay, right? Like you, you're completely fine using Citibank. In fact, you were completely fine using Citibank at the peak of the financial crisis. They became a penny stock briefly, but you could, I, you know, you could still have your money in their bank account and know that the uh, that Mr. Mr. George W. Bush was going to come and bail you out. So, uh, like as as an individual customer because of deposit insurance. So uh, it's it, you know, it's difficult to sell people on the on the use case. And if they're not sold on the use case, that then they can't be. Um, if, if you're not honest in your convictions, then then whatever end product you're going to come up with, it's, it's going to suffer. And given how much work needs to be done to realize that long-term vision, you better be really bought into that long-term vision because it's going to be a long, hard slog to get there. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. Uh... And I hadn't thought about that before, but from an onboarding perspective, when you're bringing new people, new talent into the space, not only do they have to buy into the vision for the thing that you're building, but they also have to believe in the way that you're building it because there's such there's such a learning curve with with blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Like you've got to want it, right? Yeah, it's a philosophy yeah. that you have to adopt. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So if anyone's listening to this to this podcast, considering putting together a crypto. Uh, UX and or product team together or hiring someone in uh, UX or uh, design or really any role in crypto, honestly, the number one lesson that you can take away from our pains is it's always better. It's going to be much, much easier to work with someone who's already kind of attracted to and fascinated by crypto. At the end of the day, everything you do in this space is risky. In fact, the fundamental use case for cryptocurrencies and blockchains is not established. It might very well be that in five years it all fizzles out, right? Like no one, everyone remembers that big adventure we had and over the fireplace we've seen testaments or whatever, but still um, going back to their old social media and finance roles or what have you. But the number one lesson is, yeah, you, if you want to succeed, you're already taking on such risks. Even if you're doing a side project, you're in, investing your time and it has to be a passion project, right? Like you have to be steeped in it. You have to be really absolutely fascinated by it. Like you, you have to have a really strong gut sense of um, where where you want to end up and what you want to build. Otherwise, you know, what's the point? Uh, you, you know, pretty much anyone who's good uh, in the world of technology has excellent options on the table. Uh, I mean, you, you if you're risk adjusted, you probably do be- do much better going on Upwork and just doing random projects online. So uh, the point is, is uh, passion is very important in this domain, especially on the product, especially on the product side. Yeah, absolutely. Before we hop off the topic of design, so your designers are onboarded, they're into the fold of the company, assuming they've they've onboarded to some level of knowledge with the technology. So what are they doing on a day-to-day basis to help build things out? What are their what are their methods and their processes look like? Because I, I come from a design background and I have a toolkit that I've used in traditional software and web, but curious to hear what they're doing. Yeah. So, um, so uh, to be honest, uh, our initial approach did not work. Initial approach was um, very, very uh, uh, top down, right? Like here's, here's a vision. Now translate that into uh, deliverables, if you um, So that, that just wasn't uh, very productive and the ideas were just really hard to convey. So what's working a lot better right now is um, you just you just build a prototype. It can, it can be as crappy as you want. I mean, and this is, not, uh, this is not unique to crypto, but 
And so I'm, I'm just saying it's particularly important in crypto. You just build a prototype. It can be as clunky as you want. So we're doing that with um, with the financial smart contracts, with the peer-to-peer fin- uh, contracts. Uh, we built uh, a very rudimentary interface around a set of smart contracts. And then at, at, at that point, we uh, we introduce it to the designer, explain to them what the intention is and where, where we want to go with it. And um, what we're finding right now is user, user testing is actually quite valuable. So you need... You need especially designers that can talk um, or designers who are interested in, in the technical details, picking them up from the, the hardcore technologists, but at the same time, talking a lot to the users. Again, you, you're going to say this is really obvious, and of, of course it is, but it's it's incredibly important Otherwise, in, in crypto. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to uh, deliver anything. And uh, uh, as, far, as far as day-to-day is concerned, um, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of user testing. There's uh, and, and and a lot of uh, brainstorming, right? So I, I think uh, on on a on a given day, at least thirty percent of the time, uh, they'll spend on trying to understand what what it is that they're working with, or there's, there's some subtlety or some issue, and something's not working. Then you got then you got to go look online, go on the chat rooms, whatever, talk to people, and figure out. Why it's broken? How it should work? Why is it this way? And like, why is it so complicated? Um, and I'll, I'll just give you one example with Tezos. They, uh, for 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 good technical reasons, they chose a certain way to represent operations on the blockchain. So Ethereum and Bitcoin is really simple. There's uh, there's a transaction. You can look at it on a block block explorer. No big. But on Tezos, there's a two tier model, and I'm sure for the, the people who are in the hardcore core Tezos development team, it makes a lot of sense. But we're finding it's really hard to translate over to users. So uh, nomenclature has been really important. So first of all, the, the, uh, the UX person has to really understand why the model is like this, why it makes sense, why should the average user be exposed to it, how to explain it to them. And they're, they're always going to be uncomfortable with the way it's laid out because it's still early days and it's not naturally, intuitively going to make sense to the user. So somehow they have to be educated enough that they're able to use the product for their benefit without doing anything uh, bad. I, I wanted to ask about user testings. You know, it's, it's a tried and true approach for really doing anything in, in design, but in a very early space like this where users may not even have baseline familiarity with any piece of the technology, what does that look like for, for designers, for the entire team? And, and specifically, what kind of insights are most valuable to you from that user testing? Yeah, so uh, that's, um, or in my experience, this is definitely different from conventional user testing. Um, what applies on the design side, on the development side, also applies to users. If you don't bring in users that are a little bit steeped in crypto and have some uh, some interest in crypto, you're gonna have a bad time, right? They're just gonna be befuddled and confused and say like, "Why the yeah, hell are you?" If I put a crypto interface in front of my mom, it's not yeah. gonna go well. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it, it's not like uh, Snapchat where you can get a cross section of the people and try to appeal to the broadest possible. Like, let, let's face it, the audience is gonna be really narrow for the next few years, and you have to cater to them, or you'll never get any traction. So. Uh, 
So when you identify the criteria for the corpus of um, users that you're going to test with, there's some questions that are important to ask, like have you used have you used a major exchange like Coinbase or Gemini recently? Uh, or it could be something as specific as do you own a hardware wallet? Just um, survey questions that kind of constrain the user population a little bit. And um, but even within that, you kind of want a good cross-section within the crypto community, right? So you try to have a good distribution amongst um, the entire cast of characters. You get some people more on the technical side. You get people more on the product side. You get some people that are more on the, um, how shall we say, the investor side. One of the challenges, uh, especially with this wallet, is everywhere else people are aware that they're actively using a service or they're trying trialing something out sometimes they actively pay for it or sometimes you market it to a specific company or uh or a specific domain over here uh <laughs> you know there's a lot of what's wonderful about crypto is so far anyone's been able to kind of get skin in the game right like and anyone's been able to buy coins and get fascinated be on telegram chats and so on but it's also really really noisy so which means when you roll something out there's going to be you know, 30% of the audience that's really belligerent, loud, demanding, entitled, at the same time having very tiny skin in the game, right? Like people who are people who might never even use the platform and they just they just want to ride the hype train. And uh the, I mean you see that outside of crypto, but I think it's particularly severe in the crypto world. So you have to be a little bit uh, you have to be completely sensitive to that and work around it, or you'll you'll never go live. Where are you finding people to represent a good cross-section of the community? Because, I, I mean, I know user recruiting in general is kind of a pain point for a lot of different applications. So where are you finding you know, luck re- recruiting people? If you could walk us through, including like some of the tools that you use, like we send out a survey on Google um, using Google Docs and this and that. Like, Walk us through a, some of the user testing that you've done in a tangible way? Okay, once again, our first few attempts were total failures, right? So first we tried to bribe people. We said, well, if you make your, if you, we went to the, uh, we organized some meetups, right? At our meetups, we said, well, if you can spare your, spare some time for user testing, we'll give you this or that. But sometimes it was pizza, sometimes coffee, not many, not many signups. You, you can try to find people online, but I think that's very hit or miss also. So, um, so, it, it, especially for the wallet, uh, the first round of user testing is with uh, the crypto is very community based. It's it's very very social. Uh, just as a total aside, I, I have a friend who, uh, who who works in finance who got really obsessed with crypto, and then one day he pulled me aside and he said, "Look, I, I was I have a question to ask you," and he seemed like really like bashful, like he was going to ask me something really embarrassing, right? So I I, I thought it was about something deep and personal, right? And he and he asked me, "Is it normal to have friends online?" I'm like, "Yeah, all, all the time." He's like, "People you've never met." I'm like, "That's completely fine." From a different part of the world. I'm like, "Yes," but but he was feeling like so ashamed about it. Like, I'm like, "No, this is completely normal on the internet. People have been friending like animals and <laughs> like anything. Like, you don't even know who you're talking to. It's completely normal." He was he was. He was once he got used to it, uh, we start telling you more and more about like this person he's talking to over here. There's like this kid, kid somewhere else, uh, other from there. Anyway, crypto is very social, and uh, and with every community, there's community leaders, people who are a bit more balanced and holistic about things. 
So for so exa- for example, for the wallet, we've round one, which just concluded last week, we reached out to uh, be- people who are recognized in the community who can keep a certain level of discretion and yet are uh, contributors in some way or the other. So and, and they're also like really enthusiastic about testing and stuff. Um, for the second round, uh, we, we're going more to moderators, so uh, uh, people who run um, um, like social groups, chat forums, to recommend people to us. And then for the third round, it's going to be complete open user testing. When you're reaching out to moderate, well, in any of these cases, are you, for the Tezos wallet in particular, are you focusing on people in the Tezos community or are you opening it up to other blockchains because maybe they... They understand the concepts well enough of blockchain for it to be still useful. Honestly, everyone we talk to, they they're involved in multiple um, communities, chains. I mean, Tezos is new, right? So about eighty percent of people also have used Ethereum, Bitcoin, what have you. So so that's not really been a problem so far. But you're going to see, like, as the community fragments more and more in the coming years, that's definitely going to be uh, that's definitely going to be at play. Uh, you also asked about methods. Uh, I wish I could answer your question better, but in the spirit of delegation, uh, uh, there's a UX person completely handling the process. So uh, I'll have to get back to you on that one. Actually, be a good segue into another topic, which is uh, sort of walking through the specifics of your team, the team composition, the size. Can you just paint a picture for us of what your team is today? Yeah, uh, let, let me do a head count. So uh, our... our Within our company, uh, we're seven people. So the core, the core is quite small and uh, intentionally so for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's really, really hard to, especially in the New York City region, to find qualified people with knowledge of crypto. And, uh, uh, and, 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 and the other problem is that our, our needs fluctuate a lot. So, uh, so, so. At the moment, we have a core team that really focuses and that specializes in cryptocurrency and blockchains, and just a very core technology and the very core core um, um, <clears throat> work required. Uh, a lot of the work we're actually uh, contracting out. Uh, so th- there's a lot of really solid, uh, respected um, third-party companies that have a lot of crypto clients. So you can see pretty much every crypto company is reaching out to. Uh, some corpus of vendors or the other. So, um, a couple of <clears throat> a couple of the the companies that we deal with, um, you know, they're they're based in Europe. So, Scalac, and uh, we're also working a little bit with Underscore. So, we're not the first uh, crypto people to approach them. So, I, I think that makes a nice balance. Uh, we, we keep the specialization in house. We focus really on the hardcore tech. And then everything else we're kind of uh, farming off. So the rest of the team is um, a DevOps sysadmin person, uh, and um, the rest are developers. Uh, but uh, keep in mind that, for example, for the rollout of this Tethers wallet, uh, we are, for example, uh, allying with with a company in India to as we're trying to maintain a twenty four seven infrastructure. So uh, more of the um, the DevOps and operational people will be on that side. One seemingly mundane, but in our opinion, really important question is, you know, what is your day-to-day process with the team? Are you running Agile? Uh, are you, uh, and actually it sounds like, is everybody co-located in New York? Um, so 
we were concentrated in New York, but we've actually worked with a variety of people, right? So previously we worked with someone uh, for multiple months in New Zealand, um, someone else that's going to work from us for France and so on. So that keeps changing. Obviously, our processes also have to be uh, kind of 24-7, right? So we're working very closely, for example, with people in Poland. And uh, their working hours almost perfectly coincide with our sleeping hours. So so your, your process has to be resilient to that. Um, yeah, so we follow an Agile process. We uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a Kanban flavor of Agile. And uh, it's uh, we follow the, the usual sprint process, and most of the workers or most of the tickets are driven by use cases. So uh, at the end of the day, whatever you're working on, there has to be a user story that kind of corresponds to uh, the problems that you're trying to solve, the enhancements you're trying to make. And you're tracking those in Jira or, or some type of tracking tool like that? Yeah, so we were using Zenhub for several months, but it eventually wore us down. So now we're actively looking for for alternatives one of the tricky things for us is you know all the code is open source it's all out there right so there's going to be a lot of user feedback we have this uh users forum on riot and we expect quite a few people to join and report issues all the time so uh so we have to have visibility into and, and the people justifiably demand transparency into what's being rolled out and when and uh in, in what manner so we're in a tricky situation where we have to have a lot of transparency into how we're building all these tools. And, and, and yet the tools have to be powerful enough to let us do our job. So Zenhub, which is uh, an offering by GitHub, uh, it, it sounded great, but it just doesn't give you the same flexibility as Jira, for example. So still looking for that speed spot. Yeah, it's, it's the never-ending hunt. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a new tool coming out every two months. So uh, first, we must survive uh, our current adventures, and then we'll find better tools. Yeah, <laughs> from a from a team process perspective, what's your what's your biggest challenge, or where's the most friction right now? First of all, uh, what I just told you the the kind of uh, everything we do will be or is already a little bit in the open. Every commit, every change, every ticket that we address is. Uh, you can kind of see it on GitHub, which is both awesome and terrifying at the same time. Uh, and then the usual pain points of uh, any global team, right? So even though uh, our core team is small, we work with a lot of people, right? So so we're actually coordinating across, um, uh, you know, multiple front-end developers in multiple locations, not, not, not just in America, but Europe and Asia, Backend developers also um, many um, many different kinds of projects. You know, like in- integration with hardware wallets, or at the same time working on smart contracts for uh, the Ethereum platform, or all this type of work we're doing. So that that's is, is the usual, right? And um, uh, one thing that's particularly uh, painful is. A lot of this knowledge is not commonplace, right? You can't just go to Google and look up this thing or that thing. Yeah, people have to actually sit there and figure out why something is broken or how something works. And uh, if, if you're trying to have like a 24-hour process, it's hard because you have to constantly um, translate state across time zones or, or transfer knowledge. And uh, there's no healthy way to build institutional knowledge. Uh, so. I don't have a good solution to that yet. I'll get back to you in a few months, hopefully, with a very good answer. But right now, it's a bit, a bit of a challenge. 
Yeah. So in the last couple minutes that we have, it would be great to talk through project success, you know, overall. And, you know, we would be remiss if we forgot to ask how you are confronting the challenge of the possibility that anybody can fork your product. So how are you dealing with that? And, and how does, how are you thinking about that also in terms of your business model? Yeah. So uh, that's, that's, uh, that's a great question. At the end of the day, we think forking the forkability of the product is awesome and amazing. And it's a new way of um, doing business, but it also kind of depends on what you're building, right? So a lot of people in crypto, they build protocols. So uh, it's where their focus mainly on is actually defining the protocol. And and there, um, I'm, I'm not sure how exactly it's going to work out because a lot of these protocol companies have raised money using ICOs with uh, long-term promises, right? Which may or may not ever be fulfilled. So um, if you look at protocol labs, I think they're doing a good job because they designed the protocol, because they're intimately familiar with it, a lot of the stuff is really complicated, right? Especially on the cryptography side. So if you invested time and energy, then even though all your work is out there and it's public, it's that that the basis behind it is still is limited to your institution. So by the dint of that, you can actually um, uh, do do pretty well. Any products that you that that you build are going to be more trusted because you understand really how it works. So a uh, quick example is Monero. Monero is a privacy conscious coin, which allows anonymous transactions. Many people have forked Monero into uh, different flavors to, uh, in order to make money, but it's never been the people who truly understand how the protocol works. So in every single case, they've been hacked or something terrible has happened. And that applies not just for protocols, but for everything else. Because this stuff is complicated, you can kind of afford to have everything out there. There's a risk that people are going to fork it, and that's brilliant, but uh, only some people are going to be able to fork it. So that's regarding protocols. The second is um, something like CryptoKitties, where you have a user-facing application. Well, over there, like all your backend data is public. It's, it's on chain. Anyone can make CryptoKitties too and just take over. But uh, CryptoKitties succeeded not because they made brilliant smart contracts. It's, they, they succeeded because they had a fantastic user interface. And, uh, and, and you know, we've seen in the past that people like Facebook supplanted, um, what was it, Friendster and MySpace because it was just so much cleaner and easier to use. And, and you know, that, that, that risk is always there. But, I, but if, if you're successful because you did such a good job with the UI, UX, then you're already at a huge... Uh, advantage with the network effect and everything. And then finally, um, more uh, because we're building developer tools, more infrastructural elements. Yes, everything is forkable. Anyone can use it. But that's actually beneficial because the more people that adopt tools like the ones that you built, the more market demand there's going to be for you. But uh, you can't bet the house on you know just building good software because someone, someone can take it over quite easily and, and, and and um, rule it out in a much better way. So you have to be uh, you have to be pretty proactive and vigilant, which I think is good for the ecosystem, but very stressful for people like me. And so, for you mentioned earlier that you know you'll you'll put the free stuff out 
or the the free stuff is going to be sort of the basics and you're going to sell um the higher you know more powerful stuff is so is the more powerful paid stuff is that um closed source is how is that working yeah so um We've done a very little of the value added stuff because uh, just the uh, the basics are very hard to do and they're they're going to take time. And the other thing is we're genuinely very um, we're genuinely very much in favor of open source and you have to be a little bit of an anarchist to uh, work in the in the crypto space full time, right? So, um, so so definitely that's our priority to to all the open source bit. So it, I, I like to uh, flatter us by thinking of ourselves as uh, kind of like the Ferrari uh, company, right? So Ferrari makes supercars and sells them for hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that's not really the point. I mean, they make a lot of money doing it, but the only objective why why they sell these cars is so they can race in Formula One and spend a lot of money doing research and development and winning races and looking awesome. So (laughs) it's kind of of similar for us where – uh, at, at the end of the day, it's a brand new space. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to be able to build tools that that are, that are around long after um, we've moved on to other projects. And um, yeah, the extra stuff is uh, it, it just it's just a way f- to fund fund us to do uh, um, cool things. And uh, yeah, is it going to be closed source? Uh, it um, in, in some cases, yes. Uh, especially if you're doing something bespoke for someone, obviously it's going to be completely closed source, uh, but where possible, we shall open source it. And you see the same, I mean, this is nothing new, right? Like you, you see companies like Cloudera or um, what's the other one? Datastacks, yeah, Hortonworks, IBM even, right? They, they kind of build themselves around a open source stack and they sell value-added services. A lot of the time, that's not anything proprietary or closed source. It's just expertise, right? Like, um, um, in my in my previous role, uh, we paid pretty high rates for a domain expert to come in and help us out. And three hours with them even was really useful, but they charged up the notes. Hopefully someone's going to give us huge piles of money simply for showing up. It would be great to zero in on the Tezos wallet since, you know, that seems to be the highest priority for you all right now. So what is what is the go-to-market process for that? Uh, how are you? How are you thinking about you know tr- understanding how successful that is, um, particularly when it comes to you know user tracking? It's sort of it's completely against the philosophy of the crypto space to do user tracking, but at the same time, that's really important input into the product development process. So, uh, I'd love to hear how you think about that. Yeah, I wish I'd have, I had a better answer to give you. Uh, we never really planned to build a wallet. And uh, this kind of, uh, due to circumstances, this kind of fell into our laps, right? So uh, go-to-market is simply that on this day, the network is going to launch and a uh, a user-friendly wallet must be available so people can do um, basic send, receive, and trading of uh, the Tether's cryptocurrency. Uh, so uh, really, uh, the, the question is in the second stage. So right now, we're just trying to put something out for the benefit of the community. But beyond this, right, when, when we actually have time to breathe and like really think about where we want to go with the wallet, uh, you're exactly right. Uh, it's complete, completely antithetical to the world of crypto to actually track user behaviors. And it's actually, even outside of crypto, it's um, 
uh, anyone can use it in any jurisdiction. Uh, the legal implications. I know we don't like to think about legal implications in the world of crypto, but uh, you know, when, when you when, when you put your face and your name to a legal entity, you have to think about these things. So uh, that that's obviously really complicated, and especially with GDPR coming out. Um, so uh, that 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 is going to be a challenge. So I don't think we're ever going to get uh, fine green user metrics. I don't think we're ever going to be able to uh, track to the same <clears throat> extent that we, we can. But you know, uh, Facebook apparently is also tracking your mouse gestures, right? So we're never going to get that stuff. And actually, frankly, that's that's the point of this whole uh, cryptocurrency stuff at the end of the day. But what we can get is uh, because it's so democratized a lot of organic feedback i don't know if we have good formal processes for for incorporating it and tracking it with the same precision that uh, large tech companies are doing today with with the tools that they have so really that remains to be seen i i don't think any wallet out there is monetizing itself i don't think <clears throat> any of them are necessarily um, really being responsive to concrete <clears throat> user behavior so uh, hopefully we'll have a good answer in the future. But right now I wave my hands. <laughs> yeah, in in many ways it it almost feels like uh, forking of products may actually be the way to replace the concept of collecting user data because don't you don't need to collect the data on your users to understand what they need. People will inevitably just build whatever they need because anybody can grab that code, copy it, and tweak it to their own satisfaction. And so at some point down the line, maybe it will sort of narrow down after everybody has forked a given product into what is the ultimate piece of you know technology. Yeah, the ultimate A-B test, right? Just <laughs> make a new product. This is not good. Exactly. Uh, Google2.com. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, so, so this transparency works in, in an interesting way. So... Uh, Without revealing too much, one of the other pro- products um, or projects that we're working on, it involves uh, users having a lot of control over their data, right? So, select not only selectively revealing their data to um, to whoever wants to have a look, but also having revocability, trustless computation, and so on. So, what's interesting about that is in in, in a putative uh, decentralized browser, you can imagine that. Like there's a there's a panel on, on, on within the browser and it's giving you a feed of all the ways in which your information is actually being used. So uh, in, in some sense, the paradigm is inverted. The user has really fine grained control and visibility into how their data and their assets are being used, and um, that is an inverted manner in which we do user testing, right? Like if you have visibility in how your data is doing, you can. Um, you, you can fine tune the way in which you uh, reveal your data, or, or the, the ways in which um, kind of uh, user behavior emerges itself in, in the aggregate. Yeah, yeah that's it's interesting. really interesting. Yeah, so I, I think that's going to be uh, that's a really exciting thing from a product and UX perspective. This inversion is completely new; it's not really been done before, and for the first time um, in modern technology, it's it's quite possible at scale. And what what we do with it is going to be very interesting. I think uh, f- for you guys, uh, uh, I'd be really interested to know. 
as as the space evolves, um, the kinds of processes that you uh, converge towards. There's one silly question that we ask every guest. Is there something you can tell our our listeners about yourself that would surprise people? Oh, that's an easy one. That's so obvious. So I technically legally do not have a last name. My my mom's from a matrilineal culture where um, property goes down to the daughter, and like your name and everything go through the mother. So basically, inherit from your mother, not your father. Uh, um, men actually have a very diminished role uh, in that community. And my father's from a more uh, conventional um, background. So uh, as as I grew up in very different circumstances, so my earliest years were uh, in deep in the jungles of eastern India and uh, the mountains, the Himalayan mountains. Uh, last names weren't really important. They left it up to me. And uh, by the time I was eight or nine, I was so used to not having a last name that it became impossible to... Uh, to tie myself to an identity. So much to my annoyance, here I am as an adult without a last name. And now, frankly, it's uh, <laughs> greeting. That is, I think, probably the most interesting thing that we've come across so far. You know, it, it's funny. When when we were first connecting with you for an interview, um, Zach sent me your LinkedIn profile. And so I clicked on it and I saw that it says Rishak Noll. And, and I was like, that has to be a bug in LinkedIn, right? Null is a legitimate last name. Like there's a there's someone on Saturday Night Live is uh, is, is Luke Null, I think. But um, I was merely trying to break LinkedIn by putting the word Null <laughs> okay. in one of yeah. the fields. Unfortunately, didn't. Work. That's great. Yeah, yeah, Nick Nick totally called that out. By the way, he was like that. That has to be like a developer joke. <laughs> well played, sir. Well, thank you again so much, Vishak. It was great to uh, to have this conversation finally. Great talking to you guys. Um, it was just a great conversation to have. Enjoy the music.